morning, folks. Welcome to church. Did you enjoy your extra hour of sleep this morning? We only had one person show up an hour early. I'm not going to say who it was. You know who you are. Nice to see you this morning. Open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. That's our passage. And as you're turning there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word says in Psalm 84 that no good thing do you withhold from them who walk uprightly. And so this morning, as your people gathered here in this place at St. George's, we claim the promises of the gospel that our uprightness, our righteousness is safe and secure in Christ, and that you have not withheld your word from us. What a good thing that is. Pray this morning that you would speak clearly to our hearts and that we would be conformed into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name and for the glory of his name. Amen. Amen. So friends, if you remember last week we left off uh, with the death of David and Bathsheba's son back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This was the son who was conceived through adultery. We saw then that there was another child born to them. Do you remember what his name was? Solomon, that's right. Chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. And then immediately after this part of the narrative, um, the account takes what feels like a hard left-hand turn. We're told that David has another son named Absalom, and this account of Absalom and his life goes all the way from chapter 13 to chapter 18. And let me just warn you in advance, buckle up, it's going to be a wild ride. Okay? The sermon today, I want to catch up with those chapters. Somehow, when we encounter these, these chapters from 13 to 18, it maybe even feels like an aside to the story of David. We hear about Absalom, who was the heir apparent to the throne. And keep your Bibles open. We're going to move quickly through these couple of chapters to get caught up. In chapter 13, we're told the account of what appears to be incest in the royal family, sexual perversion that incites violence and brings about the murder of Amnon. We're told that Amnon is Absalom's half-brother and he takes advantage of Absalom's sister, Tamar, and then he scorns her. And so Absalom then takes revenge for his family and and murders Amnon, kills him. Well, if you read a little bit behind the story, you'll notice that Absalom is stepping into the role of defending the family honor, one that David should have done, right? We're beginning to see this, this theme emerge in the life of David, where whether by age or sin or a combination of both, David is failing to do the things that he ought to do. And you know, friends, um, this is just a quick preachable point for all the dads here in church this morning. Passivity in your household is a sin. Not everything that happens in your house is necessarily your fault, but everything is your responsibility. 
David fails to step up and take care of his family. I don't know. Maybe he was watching the World Series. Maybe he was consumed with his hobbies or with his job or with his pastime or justifying it somehow, but he should have been paying attention to his family. So Absalom kills Amnon. Then he's concerned about his own well-being, so he flees. He flees what he thinks will be the wrath of the king. Uh, We're told then in chapter 14, and I'm just sort of hitting the high points along here, that he then returns to Jerusalem. And we pick up in chapter 15, which is our passage today. And in chapter 15, we see the son of David named Absalom conspiring to overthrow his father, the king. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and some horses and 50 men to run before him. All right, if you're a Bible reader, already you're seeing big red flags. God instructed that the kings of Israel were never to amass chariots. That they were supposed to be different from the kings of the other nations. Their hope, their reliance was to be on the Lord God, not on horses and chariots. Absalom is wicked. He returns back to Jerusalem on pretense and he begins to amass an army. And he puts together a plan to work diligently and intentionally towards stealing the throne. We're told that he does this in at least two explicit ways in verses 1 to 8. The first thing that he does is he presents himself, or more accurately, misrepresents himself to the people of Israel as their judge. He takes on for himself as an imposter, the role that actually belonged to his father, David. The second thing that we're told is that he speaks poorly of the king. And he does so in a sort of backhanded way, right? It's actually pretty clever in verses 1 to 8. He says in verse 4, you know, he's, he's sitting there and he's posing as the judge. He's misrepresenting himself. He's claiming a position that's not really his. And in verse 4, he says, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, right? Oh, that I were the judge of the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me and I would give him justice. He undermines David's authority and so we're told in verse 6. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment and, what does it say? So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Well, that's how he did it. That's how he became a treacherous, rebellious usurper. He had a a careful plan, and the careful plan was those two things, to misrepresent himself and to speak badly of the king. Now, look, this is not the main body of the sermon, but again, there's a preachable point. As your mother told you, learn from other people's mistakes. Don't be like Absalom. First, don't misrepresent yourself. There's a haughtiness that comes with our social media culture where people post their highlight reel and try to appear as more than they are. That's sin. Paul actually spoke against this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, okay, this is Paul speaking to you and me. Paul says, I say this to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. Here's what Paul's saying, that Absalom should have heeded. Don't misrepresent yourself. God has given you grace. If you're a Christian man or woman, God has given you grace. He's gifted you with the position where you find yourself right now. In your family, in your job, in society, that is God's grace to you, to be that. And so Christians should employ sober judgment and thrive in the position where God has placed you. It's from God, Paul says. Don't, don't misrepresent it. Now, does that mean that Christian men and women should never plan for or point towards or strive for more or better? Absolutely not. What it means is don't misrepresent who you are and where God has placed you. Don't be conniving and manipulating. Don't, don't mislead. But through sober judgment, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. That's the first thing. The second thing that we ought to take from this is um, don't throw shade. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't... Um, Give out backhanded compliments to undermine other people. Don't um, give these sort of low-key insults. You know, it might sound something like this. It might sound like, gosh, uh, you know, that Jimmy, he's a great guy. He's really got his life together since he quit drinking. You, you, it sounds like you're actually confirming and affirming the other person, but you're actually just taking a shot at them and trying to undermine them. When you misrepresent yourself, when you undercut others with your words, well, you're just like Absalom. And so this is yet another step along the way of Absalom's descent into wickedness, and it serves as a warning to us today. Look at verse 9. The king sends him off in peace, it says. And in the verses following verse 9, we're told that Absalom was as patient and diligent in his rebellion as he was crafty and brashly ambitious. It's a dangerous combination. He applies his plan of treachery over the course of four years. He's determined, and he's patient in his wickedness. We're told that he begins to realize that his rebellion is creating a following for him against his father, King David, and that this following now has actually reached a tipping point. And so Absalom sees that it's time for him to make his move and seize the throne. Verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, 
David's counselor. And the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom were increasing. Verse 13. David catches wind and smells a rat. And in verses 14 to 29, we're told that David gathers together a gang, a band of guys, and they decide to get out of Dodge, right? Get while the getting is good. Verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us. Quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This fascinating account that's included in this moment when David flees. Did you notice when Claudine was reading it, who went with David? Maybe you'll see it in the passage in front of you right now. Those who went with David were the faithful of Israel. But there's also a notable foreigner. An exile named Ittai. The Gittite. Now, friend, this is such good news for you and for me. Even back in the Old Testament, we catch these glimpses of the inclusion of the nations in the people of God. The Goyim, the Gentiles, those who were outside of ethnic Israel, are numbered amongst the faithful. That's really good news for you and for me. It's a foreshadowing of the fullness that is to come in Christ when the gospel will be proclaimed to the nations and people like you and I are grafted into the family of God. It's a sermon for another day. Suffice it to say that when you read of Ittai the Gittite, give thanks to God. Because in verse 21, we're told that Ittai was numbered with David, the anointed king. He was counted among the faithful. And you and I can praise God today. That by faith, we are numbered with the faithful in Jesus Christ, God's forever anointed king. All right, let's keep moving through the account. So Absalom's rebellion is gaining steam. David has fled. We're told that when he fled, he left behind 10 of his concubines at one of the houses. Now these 10 concubines, when Absalom overruns the city, um, Absalom is going to make a public display of debauchery. He holds an orgy on the rooftop with these 10 concubines so that the entire city will see him slap his father in the face. That might seem like an unnecessary, gruesome detail, but it is exactly what Nathan told David would happen to him. Back in chapter 12, the prophet Nathan said to David, what you have done in secret with Bathsheba will be done against you in the light of day. I want to encourage you on your own over the next day or so to read chapters 16 to 17. Because I want to pick us up in chapter 18. In chapter 18, David sends out warriors to deal with this rebellious gang.
he instructs those warriors to subdue Absalom, to kill his crew, and to end the rebellion for once and for all. Look at chapter 18, verse 5. And the king David ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. Oh, Ittai, remember that guy? Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. So David sends out these warriors and he instructs them to lay waste to the entire army of Absalom, but to deal gently with Absalom. And David says, do so for my sake. We're going to pick that up in a moment. That's a nugget you want to hold on to. For now, suffice it to say that even this traitorous rebellion is met with mercy and amnesty from the king. Verses 6 to 8, the battle ensues. David's faithful, righteous warriors against these traitorous rebels who were following the usurping rebel Absalom. We're told that 20,000 men are slaughtered. We're told that cowardly, chicken-hearted Absalom flees on a donkey. He's a coward. He didn't know that there were instructions that the army would spare his life. So he's riding on a donkey as fast as he can through the woods, and we are told that his head gets caught in the branches of an oak, a terebinth tree. And he's suspended there, we're told, between heaven and earth. Well, this is an archetype. In this moment, Absalom is suspended between heaven and earth, and he's caught in a place of judgment. He's going to be judged. Verses 9 to 18, we're told that the servants spare his life because David asked them to. But in verse 14, Joab has had enough. And so he takes three spears and he runs them through Absalom and kills him. He then instructs that the warriors would take Absalom's body and hack it into bits and throw it in a hole and cover it up with rocks. And so Absalom is judged. We're told in the law of God that this is the just punishment for a disobedient son. We're told in the Old Testament in the law that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And such is the end of Absalom. He receives the just punishment for his plotting, for his conniving, for his rebellion against the Lord's anointed, buried under a heap of rocks. Okay, verses 19 to 32. Messengers come back to David with this news. Absalom and his armies have been defeated, and Absalom himself has been killed. Good news, right? The rebellion's over. And the rebel has received what he justly deserved. Well, you would, you would expect that David would be happy with this. You'd expect that David would receive this news and he would be thrilled that he's no longer in danger. He can come out of hiding. Not so. Look at verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber 
over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I have died instead of you, O Absalom? My son, my son. You can feel the weight of that, right? Catch a glimpse of this, this moment of profound sadness for David. He's not happy with what happened. He's not happy with the way it worked out. I want to pull through a couple of applications for us this morning. The first one, on a superficial reading of this text, perhaps many of you can relate. Maybe you have or have had a rebellious child. But even if you haven't, if you're a parent, you can imagine the pain. Mighty King David, the greatest king of Israel, is brought low. His heart is flayed open. Look, it's a, it's a universal truth that there is nothing and no one that can hurt you as deeply and profoundly as your own children when they reject your love. And this all comes home for David in the death of Absalom. It's so final. And he cries out, why? Why? Why did this have to happen? You, you know that David in this moment, he's feeling feelings of guilt. Right? He's like, what, how did it go wrong, Absalom? Why? He's feeling self-blame. He's looking at his life and saying, was it something in my parenting that brought about this horrible turn of events and this tragic outcome? You can feel it all there when he's saying, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. He's mourning what could have been. He's, he's, he's saying, Absalom, I would have gladly given it all to you. You didn't have to take it. He says, I wish that I had died and not you. Well, if you're a parent with a rebellious child, you found yourself in a similar position many times. You could crush them. Right? You could write them off and distance them, yourself from them. You could push them away. But David shows us the picture of gracious, long-suffering parenting. Feels the pain, he lets it in, and he keeps his heart open to his son. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is that Absalom is, in fact, the rebellious, usurping son. Well, that's probably been clear to you as we've moved through this passage. But maybe the thing that's not quite so clear to you as you read it is that you and I are Absalom. We have rebellious hearts that seek to usurp the throne and to displace the rightful king. We are all just like Absalom, or if not just like Absalom, we're like the crowds of people that followed him at the very least. Chapter 15, verse 12 said that those crowds had hearts that were after Absalom. Rebellious. Wanting to do our own thing. 
Isaiah 53, verse 6, describes the human plight in this way. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. Listen, friends, this is the consistent picture of Scripture. We are like sheep that go our own way. Like Absalom, we chafe against our Lord and King, although he is nothing but loving. We refuse his goodness and deny the goodness of his word. We functionally try to place ourselves on the throne of our life and be self-determining. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you think, oh, I don't know, RB, that's not, that's not quite me. That seems a little extreme. Sure, I'm not perfect, right? I color a little outside the lines. And, and, but, but, you know, who is perfect? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Well, friend, I think it's time for a reality check. It's time for an honest appraisal of yourself. And if you want to see yourself as you truly are, don't look in the mirror. Because when you look in the mirror, you are going to suffer confirmation bias. You're going to look in the mirror and you're going to see the things that you want to see. That's how we operate. We're self-deceived and self-deluded. I'll tell you, over the course of a couple of years, I put on 20 pounds. And I used to look in the mirror and think I was pretty good. I'd look in the mirror and think, yeah, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm 40-something. I'm looking pretty good. I needed my sharp-tongued son to say, bro, you're fat. Right? And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, I am fat, and I lost 20 pounds. You can't look at yourself and be honest with yourself. You can't. You're never going to see yourself as you truly are. You will find ways to downplay the sin in your life. You'll find ways to smooth it out. You'll look for ways to yabut it away. So how are you going to see who you truly are? Well, friends, God has spoken. God has spoken in his word, in the Bible, and it alone is true. And one of the things that the Bible tells you is that every single person since Adam is a rebellious, traitorous rebel against the good God and King of the universe. The Bible teaches us that the sins that you begin to see in your life as you look to God's word and you allow the Spirit to convict you, whether they are large or small, they are not actually the real problem in themselves. They expose a deeper problem. See, these sinful behaviors reveal a deeper ill. That you have a heart after Absalom. That's why you're prone to sin. Every sinful desire acted upon is usurping. It's this will to remove the Lord God from the throne of your life. It's this desire to rule and reign in your life as you see fit. A heart after Absalom. When we read the account of Absalom, it has a condemning, convicting weight.
you are given over to lust. You're addicted to internet pornography. The real problem is that you want to rule your own life and enjoy momentary pleasure, whatever the long-term cost. It's traitorous to the Lord God. If you are stingy and miserly and you rob from the poor and you don't give to the work of the Lord, it's because you want to rule over your own stuff, right? It's traitorous. If you hold on to unforgiveness of others, the real problem is that you want to be Lord and King and you want to determine what is just for that other person and mete out judgment on them. You're, you're trying to take a place that belongs only to the Lord God. It's traitorous. It's treason. And all treason deserves death. You read the account of Absalom in 2 Samuel, and friends, you have to read it and see yourself. It's the only way you're going to get it. And be honest that you have a heart that is after Absalom. But there is gospel in this. Because while Absalom is the rebellious, treasonous, faithless son, that, by contrast, will point us to Jesus. When you see how wicked and depraved Absalom is, and you understand that you have a heart after Absalom, then and only then will you behold the beauty of Jesus, who is the faithful son, who was obedient to the Father's will. You will see him as infinitely better than Absalom and so much greater than you. You will see that where Absalom fails, where you fail, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the son that we need. The first thing I want you to see in this is that you are Absalom. The next thing I want you to see in this is actually just from chapter 18, verse 33. In David's final plea. Look, in this you will come to know and see the heart and the mind of God. And, and you know, that's why we read Scripture. We want to know God, who he is, what he's like. We want to know ourselves. That's why we read Scripture. So look at verse 33. I read it a moment ago. We see King David, who would have been well within his right to squash and kill the rebellious little prig, Absalom. Should have done it. Could have. He could have and should have sought him out and just slaughtered him. But he didn't. And in fact, the, ab the opposite is true. David told his warriors to spare Absalom's life. And then when he heard that Absalom had died in following the battle, David didn't rejoice, but he wept bitterly and deeply. In this, behold the heart of God towards rebellious sinners. You and me. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we're told that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God's willing. It's like David weeping over his rebellious son. Now, I want you to note very carefully in this, this does not mean that every single person will be spared. Every single person will come to repentance. Absalom dies. What it does mean is that even when people perish, God doesn't celebrate it. It grieves his heart. You're sitting here this morning and you finally get it. You say, man, I finally see it in Absalom. I've been living in open rebellion against the God of the universe. I want you to hear these words from God and I want you to insert your own name into this. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Oh, my son. Oh, my son. My son. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, my son. My son. Look, it doesn't mean that all rebels are going to be saved. Absalom dies the death that he deserved and earned. What it does mean is that David was always more willing to forgive Absalom and welcome him home than Absalom was willing to repent and return. Look, you read this unfolding account of Absalom's treachery and you think he could have stopped at any moment. He had a loving father. He had a gracious king who was more willing to welcome him home then Absalom was willing to come home. A king who was more willing to forgive sorry rebels than to execute them. And so in David's final plea for Absalom, we behold the posture of God toward rebels like you and me. It's a posture of mercy and clemency, amnesty to the son or daughter who would simply return. Can't let this moment pass. If God has given you another breath, he's done so because he's not willing that you should perish in your rebellion. He's willing that you would repent and return to him. Absalom mistook David's mercy and kindness for weakness. Friend, with all my heart, I implore you, don't make the same mistake. It's the first thing. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should repent. The second thing that I want you to behold in this final plea of David, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33, David says explicitly that he wishes he could have died for Absalom's sins and in Absalom's place. Did you hear that? He said, I, would it have been me that would have died? Well, could you imagine a better picture? You and I are like Absalom and we are 
foolishly leading rebellion against God's anointed. Absalom's rebellion demanded death. And our rebellion demands death too. Yet we see that God's heart is merciful towards us. So that we'll repent. What a tragedy. That we take God's mercy and his kindness towards us and we trade on it. We play fast and loose with it. We use it as an excuse to waste more time in rebellion. And we drive ourselves further and further into sin and closer and closer to destruction. David wants nothing more than for Absalom to stop, to repent, to return, but he won't. Absalom sees it all the way through to his own destruction and to his own death. And he dies, as he should, hanging on a tree, pierced through with a javelin thrust. And David says, I wish it was me. Look, you and I have a better David, David's greater son. We deserve death for our rebellion against the Lord's anointed one, and yet he hung on the tree for us in our place. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced through for our iniquities. That's what scripture tells us. He was run through with the spear, the spear that our rebellion deserved and demanded. And so when you read these chapters of Absalom, let them serve as a warning to repent. But also read this account and see David. And in David, behold your Savior. This Savior who mercifully desires not the death of a sinner, but that he would turn from his wickedness and live. This Savior who not only wished he could have died in your place, but did. We all have a rebellious, deceitful heart like Absalom, but we have an even greater king and Savior. Let me, let me read to you the rest of that, that verse I read a while ago from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Right? We're, we're rebels. We usurp the throne of our life and want to do what we think is right. We deserve death. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. David says, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, I wish I could have died in your place. Jesus says to you this morning, my son and my daughter, I did die for you in your place. Repent. A better David. David's greater son, Jesus Christ, is what we behold in this passage. 
we see God's willingness, his desire, and his action to in fact die in the place of rebellious sons and daughters. Friends, learn from Absalom. Repent and return to him. Find that he was waiting all along before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, it's only by your spirit that we see ourselves who we truly are in scripture. You alone are the one who can bring sin consciousness. We live all of our lives claiming to peace, peace where there is no peace, but your spirit shows us that we deserve death. We deserve to hang on a tree and be pierced through with a spear. But it's also your spirit that doesn't lead us to despair, but shows us Jesus, the one who was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The embodiment of your desire to die for us and in our place. I pray, God, that this great love that you have for us, even as rebels, would draw us back to you, that we might be converted and granted new hearts in Jesus. We pray this in your name.